take that Bible this morning, open it back to the book of 1 John. If you're visiting with us, we are studying the epistle or the first letter of John. So not John's gospel, but 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John towards the back of the Bible. And we're in 1st John chapter 2. And let me go ahead and read our text for you, for I feel like we're coming to a little bit, somewhat, I'll explain that in a moment, a new paragraph. And, uh, but let's look to the teaching. You follow along as I read from the Word of God. I will be reading from 1st John chapter 2, verse 28. It begins and says, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in, sh- in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we shall or what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as He is righteous. Let's stop there. We come to a just a wonderful section in this epistle. And in many ways, just as we approach it, they are uh, somewhat difficult to fit kind of into a nice, neat, well-defined structure. There are some scholars, and maybe it's paragraphed that way, look in your Bible, who finish that last section that we had taught in 18 to 18 down through 27, And so they believe that that closes that paragraph and that with the R approach here into 228, they start a new paragraph. And I'm certainly thinking that that there's truth to that. John seems to be making a change here when he says, and now in verse 28, little children. However, I wouldn't want to make such a a total departure because you remember as we studied in 1827, through 27, one of the key words there is the word abide. And you'll note in verse 28, when John opens that section, he says, and now little children, abide in him. And so I think what you have in 228 and 29 is really a summary, if you will, to what he has previously written in 18 through 27. But it's also a transition beginning at 228, that will push us all the way down to chapter 3 in verse 10, okay? And so then he's going to be talking to us about being part of the family of God. Now certainly, uh, when you look at the writers and you begin to reflect on themes and paragraphs, one of the themes in this section of Scripture is the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
In fact, John mentions the second coming four different times. Two of the times, they refer to his first coming where Jesus Christ appeared. And then in the second mention, it refers to his appearing and it's looking to the future second coming. And so we're going to see, and you can see, even look in verse 28, that when he appears, when, when is that? Well, his second coming. Uh, it says that we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. I mean, the second coming is of Christ is a cardinal doctrine of the church. I mean, you just can't look much either in the Old Testament or the New Testament and not see the mention of the second coming. In fact, did you know that one-fifth of Scripture, okay, is predictive prophecy? So when you look at all of the Scripture, about one-fifth of it is predictive prophecy. One-third of that one-fifth speaks of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth to judge sinners and reign with the righteous. In fact, it's interesting because when you study all of the Scripture, there are about 660 general prophecies in the Bible, okay? And half of them are about Jesus Christ. So there's about 660 in total prophetic prophecies. If that, that's probably redundant. 330 of those speak about Jesus Christ. Of the 330 that are about Christ, 110 of those relate to his first coming, and then 220 refer to his second coming. So when you think that he appeared and his incarnation, that he did. That's his first coming, but there's over 220 that deal with the second coming. And out of the 46 Old Testament prophets, 10 of them spoke of matters related to his first coming, and 36 of the Old Testament prophets spoke of matters related to his second coming. In fact, someone estimated that there are over 1,500 verses in the Old Testament that looked to the return of the Messiah in glory and in judgment. In fact, just to categorize it for you, every time Christ mentions his first coming, he mentions his second coming eight times. So listen, he is coming. And the question that could be asked is, what happens when you understand that Jesus is going to return and that you and I must give an account before him. What happens? Look at 1 John 3, 3. It says there that everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. In other words, it's motivation for righteous living. Now remember as we step into 1 John 228 that John is writing all the way through this epistle to help us distinguish between the true and the false. I mean, that's why he writes. He writes about the true and the false. He writes about light. He writes about darkness. He writes about being the children of God, and then he writes about the children of de the devil. And all through his epistle, he's presenting a series of tests 
to enable you to determine the validity of your claim. Now, he's not writing, I don't think overall, for you to doubt, but he's writing for your assurance. He's writing in 1 John 1, 4, for your joy. And so he sets these tests up. You remember, he has doctrinal tests, okay? He has relational tests, and he has moral tests. The doctrinal tests have to do with doctrine, with the teaching of Scripture, and they have to do with the person of Christ. You've got to get Christ right because our salvation hangs on it. Then secondly, he deals with relational tests. And basically, John says, it doesn't really matter your position in the church. It doesn't really matter your respect in the community. If you don't show love to the brethren, you are nothing. You're not even a believer, okay? So he's going to set these tests up. You've got doctrinal tests, you've got relational tests, and you have moral tests. In other words, it's not just enough to affirm the right doctrine, I bet you many people here in the Central Valley can affirm the right doctrine. What John says is you must be obedient to the one you confess for your faith to be authentic. So as we come now to 228 down through 310, we're dealing with a moral test, okay? We just left the doctrinal test regarding Christ. This is what John's doing. He's taking you now into the path of, this, of another test, and it's a moral test. You've got to be obedient. Now, what we're going to do here, and what John does, is examine the distinguishing marks of the children of God from the children of the devil. And he's going to just compare these. Look again at the text. Let me just show you these references, just to get an overview. We'll fly at 40,000 feet, just for a second. He says in 228, and now... Little children, he says, abide in him. Look down at verse 29. He says at the second half, be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In other words, you're part of the family of God. Chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father, family, has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now verse 7 little children let no one deceive you look down at chapter 3 verse 9 no one who is no one born of god makes a practice of sinning in fact look at the end of verse 9 and he cannot keep on sinning because he is born of god by this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the what? The devil. Now, the question that would be posed to you as you sit and listen, as we sit, is which are you? Are you a child of God? Or are you a child of the devil? And the thrust of this passage is to contrast, listen, as sharply as possible, two groups of people and two kinds of action. The group of people is the children of God and the children of the devil. The action of the children of God is righteousness. The action of the children of the devil is they continue to sin. And so the major aim of this passage is to lay out the distinguishing marks of God's children. 
that you might be asking, what are the distinguishing marks of the children of God? And how can we discern between the genuine and the make-believe? I mean, how do you know you've got the, the real thing, okay? In fact, what John's going to do now before us, at least this morning, is give us the distinguishing marks um, of what it means to follow God. And that's what I want to take you into. The first distinguishing mark of the children of God is, we'll just call it this, our pattern of abiding. Our pattern of abiding. You say, how do I know if I'm really one of His? Here it is, the pattern of abiding. Let's pick up the text in in 2.28. Follow with me. He says, and now, little children. Now, stop there just for a second. He says, and now, and he's connecting the thought to verse 27. He's kind of making a concluding appeal, and he's he's making a a final appeal, but but he's moving us forward at the same time. And he calls us there, look again at 2.28, little children. This is not new. This is not to demean us. You remember, we were quite clear that that little phrase there, little children, is just a tender term. It has nothing to do with the maturity level of being a child. It has everything to do with being part of the family of God. In fact, when John uses the term, he's just referring to Christians. In fact, just glance back at chapter 2, verse 1. Do you remember there? He says, my little children. He's just writing to believers. He says, I'm writing these things to you. Look over at chapter 2, verse 12. He says it again there. I am writing to you, little children. Look down at chapter 2. You remember that in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. If you glance down to chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. And on it goes. There's more places. This is a very tender term. And remember, I've reminded you that The Apostle John, this is 60 years after Jesus Christ was crucified. 60 years. John the Apostle is probably close to his 90s. And he's writing as this aged apostolic father. And he's appealing to you. He's appealing to us. And so as he goes into this new section, he says there, and now little children, and then look what he says. It's key. He says, abide in him. John reiterates the command. Now, there are two thoughts when we look at this command to abide in him. First, let me just say this, that it is a command. It's a command. It functions as a command. And so what God is saying even this morning to you, to you as the children of God, I'm in that, and John even says we at one point, He's writing this, and the Spirit of God would give you a command this morning. He says you need to abide in Him. Now remember, I don't, you know, John, he just keeps repeating these themes, so I'm going to keep repeating them. The word abide is just simply the Greek word meno, okay? And it just means to stay. It just, when you see the word abide, it just means to stay. It means to remain. 
And, and what's important for us is when you look at that command is it's a present tense command. So obviously he's not telling you to abide when you just started in your life in Christ. He's saying to you this morning, he's saying to me and to us as a body, little children, you need to abide in him. You this morning need to remain in him. You need to, you know, stay faithful to him. And this ideal of abiding is a deep, permanent relationship between God and the believer in Christ by the Holy Spirit. You say, well, okay, it means to stay, it means to abide, to remain. You say, well, what does it exactly mean? Well, you can write books on that kind of stuff, but just let me re remind you. Look back to chapter 2.6. Here's what it means to abide. It, remember in 2.6, he says, whoever says, and remember the false teachers thought they knew God, but John says, whoever says he abides in him, here's the key, ought to walk in the same manner in which he, what? Walked. If you're going to abide in Christ this day, stay in him, remain in him, you are going to walk in the way that Christ walked. Your manner of your life is going to be following the manner of the life of Jesus Christ. And we tried to zero in on and say that whatever that means, which is enough, it means that you're dependent on Christ. As he was dependent on his father to do his father's will, the believer who remains in Christ is the one who's walking in the same manner as he walked and won't leave it. Do you understand that? I mean, I can compare, compare and make the contrast for you. You remember in 2.19, they went out from us, for they were not really, what? Of us. If they were of us, they would have, in fact, look at the word. It's, it's, look at the word in 2.19. They would have, it says this in the ESV, they would have continued with us. That's the word for abide. If they were really of us, they would have abided with us or remained with us or stayed with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But a believer is one who abides. A believer is one who remains. Now listen, I don't need to say this to you. It's enough for me to say in our old evangelical theology, you just can't walk an aisle and pray a prayer, right? You can't just walk some mile, pray some prayer, sign on some dotted line, and act as though you're in the kingdom by way of a decision. We call that decisional regeneration. The Bible doesn't talk about that. What the Bible does talk about is abiding in Christ. The Bible addresses this, and he commands us, does John, to abide in him. Look over at 1 John 2.10, and I'm just trying to make this somewhat understandable so it's not nebulous you're walking in the manner and he walked verse 10 whoever loves his brother what does it say abides in the what light and that's very similar to abiding in him you're abiding in god you're abiding in the light well how do you know if you're abiding you love the brethren meaning this that it's impossible for someone who says they love God to not love the people of God. I mean, don't you just love the people of God? I mean, when you're redeemed and when he gets a hold of your heart, you want to be with the people of God. So you not only walk the way he walked, but you find in your heart that as you abide in the light, you love the brethren. And so listen, do you love the brethren? So John just says here, little children, 
Abide in him. Walk as he walked. Love the people of God. Here is another expression of it. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Remember when John said the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, what does it say? Abides forever. So here it is. Abiding is doing the will of God. Doing the will of God is obeying the commandments of God. Okay? Now, does it, you say, Scott, does that speak of sinless perfection? Oh, no. It just speaks of the direction of your life. So John, again, he says, now, little children, he says, I, I want you to abide, remain in him, stay with him. You know, remain in him, follow him, do the will of God, love the people of God, do the will of God is the thought. In fact, look there in 2.19, it says they would have continued with us, but they didn't. Look at 2.24, let what you have heard from the beginning, what? Abide in you, and we talked about that. Let that apostolic word, this book, remain in you. You, you you get the idea it's not hard is it there's no such thing as someone who names christ and doesn't abide in god okay when you're in christ you abide in him you want to honor him you want to love him and i'll explain that in just a moment and here if you what you heard from the beginning abides in you verse 24 and then it says, and if, what, and if from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and the Father as you abide in His Word. The Father and the Son abide in you. In fact, just one more time, would you look over at John 15? Here, here's what abiding is, and I just want you to see it with your eyes. This is the command. Now, how do you distinguish between the children of God and the children of the devil? Here's why. You distinguish them. Here's how. Because of our pattern of abiding. You, I love this section. In fact, we ought to start in ABF just on John 15. That's what I think. So significant. There it says, and you know, you guys who are farmers, can, you got to teach me even more. I'm learning about this stuff. He says in 15.1, I am the true vine, does Jesus. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remember this, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you what? Abide in me. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is what? Thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the what the fire now there's some people who believe that's the loss of reward i don't I, I think what jesus is saying is if you don't abide in me you will be cast into the eternal fire okay in other words if you can claim christ but if you're not abiding then you're going to be you're going to be thrown it says into the fire look at verse 7 if you abide in me and my words abide in you ask whatever you wish and it will be done and then he goes on in verse 9 as the father has loved me so i have loved you abide in my love and then it says and you say what does that mean verse 10 if you keep my commandments 
you will abide in my love. And so you have this principle all over to abide in Christ. So let me just say this. It is not a call, this command, to passivity. This is not a call to laziness. It is an ever-deepening communion with Jesus Christ. Now, let me just ask you this question. Why would John exhort you to abide in Christ if he's already abiding in you? Is that a fair question? Why do you need to abide in Christ if your salvation is already secure? Because as one said, the Bible teaches the complementary truths, okay, that true Christians will persevere in their faith and that God will keep them eternally secure. In other words, you have these two truths. You will, if you will, persevere in your faith and at the same time you're persevering, God promises to keep you eternally secure. I mean, without question, the Lord securely holds on to his own. You know that. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they, remember, follow me. Jesus said, and I give eternal life to them and they will never, what, perish and no one will snatch them out of my, what, hand. My Father, Jesus said, who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's the divine side of the equation. But listen, that wonderful reality does not absolve believers from the responsibility to persevere in their faith and abide in Jesus Christ. In other words, he's sovereign, but you have a responsibility. He abides in you, he anointed you, he placed the Holy Spirit in you, and yet you're commanded by John right now, this day, to abide in him. So am I, as I'm driving down 416, I don't know where I was, I'm praying this morning, Lord, I can't preach apart from you. Because apart from me, Jesus said, you can do what? Nothing. So Lord, would you energize this? I mean, this is what a believer does. Now listen, he's sovereign, but you've been commanded to abide in him. Let me show you one unique scripture. Look over at Jude, and I think you're well aware of Jude. Jude is obviously the book right prior to the book of Revelation. And you know that wonderful, wonderful statement, and I'm illustrating here the divine side as well as our human responsibility. Now, this is a great statement, and you know this doxology, Jude 24. It says, now to him who is able, in other words, that's God, he's powerful. To him who is able to keep you from what? Stumbling. He's going to hold you. He's going to keep you from stumbling. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. In other words, he's going to keep you. He's going to hold you. He's going to keep you from stumbling. He's going to present you holy. We got that. He's sovereign. But have you ever seen Jude verse 20? 
But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. In other words, you're building yourselves up. You're you're in the most holy faith. You're praying in the Holy Spirit. And then this in verse 21, keep yourselves in the what? Love of God. The love of God is in us. He loved us and so we love. But listen, he tells us to build ourselves up in the faith and to keep ourselves in the love of God. So listen, God guarantees the believer eternal security, but the believer is exhorted to continue to abide in Christ. To say it another way, God holds us, we are his, but we persevere and abide in Christ. Him is the thought. I think it's much like the doctrine of salvation. God sovereignly saves us. Sovereignly, right? But he will never do that apart from your personal, what? Faith. So how do you explain that? I don't don't know how to explain that. He's sovereign, but he's not going to save you apart from your personal faith. Or if you look at it in this way, in the case of sanctification, God promised to mold you into the image of his son. He said in Philippians, did Paul, that he who began a good work in you will what? Perfect it, complete it until the day of Christ. That he did say, and yet he will not perform that apart from your toil and your effort. So believers this, God and Christ abides in us through the Holy Spirit and yet we are commanded to abide in him. And so divine responsibility is placed alongside human responsibility, okay? And that is why you have not only the promises of the eternality of our salvation, but you have commands to remain and to abide and to hold on and to be unwavering in your devotion to the truth. So John just says here, listen, Abide in him. He says, here's how you can distinguish if you're really of the, of, uh, the children of God. You will have a pattern of abiding. That's simple. That, I like the word pattern. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. It just means that your pattern is going to be that of righteousness. But just note here, and I'm still under this first principle, not only is there a command to abide, but secondly, he bolsters it does this command by a motivation behind it. Look back to to 1 John, right? Because that's all we're going to do here is be about the scripture. He says to abide in him. And you say, why would I abide in him? Watch this. So that, we call that just a purpose clause, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now, as we look at that in verse 28, there's just two key terms I want you to see behind this motivation. It's the word in verse 28, appears, okay? And then at the end of verse 28, it's the word coming. He says, I want you to abide in him, verse 28, that when he appears. Now, the the word appears just means to be made visible, okay? And, And what that word means is it describes the appearing of Jesus Christ in the flesh. In other words, when he appears, and there's different ways that the scriptures use this appearance. Sometimes it refers to his first coming where he came in his incarnation in the flesh. In fact, look back at chapter 1 of 1 John. We saw it a little bit where John says 
at the end of 1-1, he said, with, touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And then this in 1-2, and the life was made manifest. In other words, it became flesh, okay? In other words, that one who was with eternity with God has now been made, if you will, manifest. That's what the word means. In fact, look over at chapter 3, verse 5. This appearing just speaks of his first coming. He said in 3, 5, you know, see it there, that he appeared to take away sins. Appeared, obviously, is in the past tense. He appeared. It's referring to his first coming. It's referring when he came on this earth. He came. He appeared. He took on flesh. In fact, look at verse um, 8, I believe it is. Whoever, chapter 3, where it says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has sinned, has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's referring to his first coming. So when you have, when he appears, it refers to the incarnation, but it also speaks of his glorious resurrection, that when he was raised from the dead, he appeared and was seen in his resurrection. But the third dominant usage of that word there, of that when he appears, is a reference to his second coming, okay? That when he appears, speaking of his return to earth. And that's John's meaning here. Obviously, right now, Jesus Christ is invisible. But when he becomes at a second coming, when he appears in the future, he will become visible to all. Now, look what he's saying here. Go, go back to 28. Little children abide in him so that when he appears... And again, he's addressing the second coming because you know it in verse 28 at the end, well, we'll not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. And that word for coming there is just simply his presence is what the word means. It just speaks of his second coming. Maybe you've heard the Greek word. It's just simply the term is parousia. And I, sometimes when you're listening to lectures or talks and you hear about the parousia, that's just simply the word for coming. So not only did he appear at one time, he's going to appear again. And when he is appearing, he is going to come again. And this is just simply the doctrine of the second coming. Beloved, he is coming again. Let me just show you just a couple places in the scripture that affirm this. Look over in Matthew 24. And, and the reason I'm going to show you this is I do so for the young people in here. Because after a while... I just feel like we just talk in cliches and we just talk in generalities. And what, what we want to say here is he is coming again, right? He is coming again. And that's what the scriptures teach, right? So I'm going to show you that. And you, some of you well aware of this. But in, in Matthew chapter 24, when it says he's, he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when all these things will be. And what will be the sign of your, what? Coming. He's coming. That's his parousia. His presence again to the earth. Look at verse 27 of chapter 24. Matthew 24, 27. It says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the what? The coming of the Son of Man. 
the scriptures say that he's going to come again. Look down, if you will, in 24, verse 39, that they were unaware, were the people, until the flood came and swept them all away, and so will be the coming, what? Of the Son of Man. He is coming physically, visibly, if you will, in power and in glory is what the scriptures say. Look over to 1 Thessalonians, will you, just for a moment. 1 Thessalonians, and I'm just trying to affirm here the teaching of the scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's why we call this a cardinal doctrine. And I'll pull it all together in just a minute. In the New Testament, in, in Paul's letter there to the Thessalonians, it's right after Colossians. It says in chapter 2, verse 19, Therefore, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his, what? Coming. He's coming. He's going to come and be physically present. He is coming. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. Here's the prayer. Is that, that he may, 3.13, establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He's coming again. Look over at chapter 5 in verse 23 where it says in 1 Thessalonians, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's so many other scriptures, is there not? Remember when Jesus said, certainly, you don't have to turn there. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. He said, but I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will, what? Come again. He is coming. He is coming, okay? Now you just let that sink in. He is coming. I will come again, take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Do you remember Grace Church of the Valley, when he ascended into glory in Acts 1, there were two angels there, and they said that Jesus was taken up from you into heaven, and he will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. In other words, he's coming in that way. As he went up, he will come down. The author of Hebrews wrote this about Christ, that he will appear, I like this phrase, a second time. I love that because none of us are going to doubt that he came the first time. We read it. It's historical. His future coming is, is, is something that we watch for by faith. And the writer Hebrews said that he will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. Hebrews 9, 28. In fact, Philippians, you remember when Paul said in 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thinking of John, this writer, when he wrote in the book of Revelation, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will, what? See him. Remember, John ends with a promise in 2230, Surely I am coming soon, right? And then John himself says, Amen, what? Come, Lord Jesus. Listen. All of these scriptures point to the unmistakable clarity and the reality of his coming. 
But listen, John's point here, though, is not doctrinal. His point here to us, and in this passage, is practical. The return of Jesus Christ is great motivation for the believer abiding in Jesus Christ right now. And the motivation for his return then, look back now in 1 John, is stated positively and then it's stated negatively. Look at it and I'll pull it all together. It says, little children, abide in him. Well, why, John? Here's the purpose, that when he appears the second time, we may positively have confidence and negatively not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. In other words, he's going to come, and when he comes, watch this, you want to abide in him. Why? So it says there in 28, you may have confidence, okay? Those who abide in Christ will have confidence. Now, this is an interesting word there, confidence. Says, what does that mean, have confidence? Well, originally the word for confidence meant to, it meant to speak freely. It's kind of, it's, so how, how does that have to do with this? So I'll explain it. It meant to speak freely. If somebody was confident, they spoke freely is the thought. They, they, there was an openness there between people. But when you see that word confidence, it also carried the idea of courage. It carried the idea of, of boldness. And it was, in this sense, the confidence to speak freely, even before a king, without fear. Then as the word developed, it came to be used, listen, in a moral sense of openness to God, of fearlessness before God, and a confidence before God that one would be allowed to speak to him freely in prayer. Now, when you begin to connect the dots, it's this. Those who abide in him will have confidence to stand before him in that great day and not shrink back, okay? And I think here he's just giving us encouragement that we know God, that we know our sins are forgiven, that we know of his salvation, then we're confident of that. And here in the text, we're abiding in him. And so, beloved, if you abide in Christ, when Christ comes, when he appears, you will have boldness positively. And look again here in verse 28. You will not shrink from him in shame at his coming. In other words, it's the idea of shame, that it's a strong word, or even fear standing before a holy God as judged. And so here I think John's still being positive. We are encouraged to abide in Christ, if you will, so that we would not be ashamed. And you say, who is ashamed? And this is what's interesting here in the text. Who is it that is ashamed? Is he, is he trying to exhort you to abide so that you won't be ashamed? I don't think so in the context. I think in the context here, he's trying to say to you that if you abide in Christ, you, you will have confidence. And as you have confidence, you won't be ashamed because the people who are ashamed in the scripture are the unbeliever. 
The unbeliever is the one who will be put to shame by Christ. In fact, I'm thinking of Daniel 12 too. Look at it later. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. It speaks of the second coming. Some, Daniel 12 too says, to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Pretty frightening, isn't it? Some will arise to everlasting life, others to everlasting shame. That's the unbeliever. I'm thinking of the scripture, do you remember it in Mark 8, 38, when Jesus said, whoever is ashamed, he said there, of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. And so here, the unbeliever at the coming of Christ will be shamed. It will mean judgment. Why? They did not abide in Christ. They rejected the Son. They were unfaithful to Him. And they should actually fear the coming day of Christ where their shame will become evident. I mean, obviously, we're in an election year, aren't we? And everybody's kind of thinking what will happen It might be more important if people were to think what will happen to me when Jesus Christ returns, okay? However, here, the one who abides in Christ will not have to be ashamed, will not be fearful before Christ. Why? Because the believer can stand with confidence in that day because of, here's the point, our pattern of abiding. So let me just ask you, are you in Christ? When we talk about abiding, do you have the right assurance? If if you're here and in your heart you're saying, Pastor, I'm not perfect, but I want to be, I want to abide in him. I I don't have it all down. I I fall short. I confess my sin, 1 John 1. But but I want to love him, and I want to love the people of God. Then John gives you assurance. But he gives one more, and we'll close with this. He gives, secondly, not only our pattern of abiding, but he gives our practice of righteousness. Look at it briefly here. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In other words, I think what John is saying here is that the very one who executes judgment, if you will, in verse 28, is the very one who is righteous in verse 29. And he moves us, here's how I take it, from the fact of judgment to the very character of the judge who is righteous, that being God, okay? And he says, if you know that he is righteous. Now here, it's speaking of God is righteous. It's an attribute of God, And the fact that God is righteousness or the righteousness of God is basically just an expression of his holiness in relation to his creatures. In other words, what this phrase means is all his attitudes, God's, all his actions are thoroughly consistent with his holy nature. In other words, God himself is righteous in all his words, all his ways, all his laws, all his promises, all his judgments. And as such, look at verse 29 again. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness 
has been born of him. John says this, if you know as an assured fact that he is righteous, then you may be sure by experience that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So watch this. Here's the connection. As God is righteous, his children are to be righteous in their daily life. What it's saying is this. His righteousness, God's, is passed down to his children. And his children reflect the character of God. We are, look at verse 29, born of him. And though our efforts are imperfect, we are in the habit of doing righteousness. So look at it again there. If he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who, what? It says this, does righteousness or practices righteousness. Again, just want you to know, John's not talking about a commitment you make at, a, at an evangelistical rally, and those could be good, and some of you were converted at that, okay? But he's not talking about a one-time decision. Here's how you can know you're in Christ. Is there a pattern of abiding in your life? And here's the second one, and it's meant to encourage you. Is there a pattern of righteousness? Is there a desire in your life to please Christ, to do his will, to obey his word, to love the people of God? If so, then you are a child of God. Now, um, just for the sake of an illustration, okay? And I've told you this once, but I think I'll, I'll tell you once more. At least I think I've told you. I think I have. Remember when I said um, I went to that funeral one time? I went to a funeral one time, and, and enough, I think I've shared this with you, but it gets the point across maybe a second time. And the guy was a Roman Catholic, okay? And, and I'm not trying to share this harsh and not trying to... <clears throat> and remember I told you I knew that guy's son? So my son, he's on my... This guy's son who died, his son's on my staff his, in Chicago. His son's a Christian. His son loves God and all that. And he told me all of his life that his dad was just a full-on pagan, okay? Just a, a total rebellious man against God, loved the world, loved his, his, his alcohol, loved his affairs, everything. And we used to pray for him. But I went into the funeral of this man. Remember when I told you the opening words out of the priest's mouth was this. I'll never forget it. I felt like standing up and that would have been stupid. You know, you know I just, it wasn't the time. Was, he said, we thank you for so-and-so. Because we recognize that by his, what, baptism, he has entered into eternal glory. And I, I almost felt like jumping up. In other words, what he was saying was this. Because that man was baptized as a little, what, baby. That act of sprinkling that man 70 years prior even though his whole life was anti-God, was the assurance of that man's salvation. So now you understand when people want to baptize their kids, it's like a serious deal if you're Catholic. And I'm, and I'm not trying to be mean if any of you are visiting or Catholic. Yeah, you'll get your baby to be Catholic. You sure would, because if you're Catholic and you get them sprinkled, they believe that that is the instrument of justification. 
so that this man, though he lived however he wanted to live, was granted the assurance of his eternal security because something that took place 70 years ago. Listen, this is what I'm trying to say. That's exactly opposite what John is saying. John's saying, if you want to know if you're distinguished as a child of God, it's this, beloved. Do you have a pattern of abiding in Christ? And secondly, do you have a pattern of righteousness lived out in your daily life? And if you don't, then you're not a believer and you should fall on your knees in this service and confess that and come to Christ because the people... Look, I, I want to be clear here. Look, look again in 29. This is so important. It says that, and then I'm done. Everyone who practices righteousness has been, what? Born of him. In other words, you're born of God. You practice righteousness. Now, he's the one who causes us to be born of him in 229. But watch this. Righteousness does not produce the new birth. In other words, you don't practice righteousness and so you're born of him. What this text is saying is you're born of him and because you're born of him, you practice righteousness. In other words, righteousness does not produce the new birth, but it is the evidence that one is born of him, not the cause or the condition of it. So listen, do you have a pattern of abiding and do you have a, do you have a, a pattern of practicing righteousness? And if you do then you mark yourself out as a child of God. He's not talking about sinless perfection, but he just wants to be real clear about the doctrine of salvation. And listen, if you're Catholic and you're here, I didn't mean to offend anybody, but you don't want to be banking on some kind of ceremony. A, really? You mean like if you took your baby and you just you know, put some... Now, obviously, people who sprinkle babies in the christian church don't believe that's salvific they believe that's a sign of a covenant that's something else you got that but when you're a roman catholic you believe that's the instrument of justification let me just be clear how do we become a christian their instrument is sprinkling and i'm serious you just go back to their canons they sprinkle that sprinkle is how do you become a christian what's the instrument that god's given in the new testament it's called what it's called repentance and one other thing, faith. The instrument in Protestant theology is you say, God's holy, I'm not holy. And, and the instrument is you cry out in faith to him and God grants you through faith that he gave you the means to become a believer, but you have to express faith in him. So listen, this is way off my notes. I just want to say this to you, okay? Have you, sitting in this room, expressed faith in God? Because if you're going to enter into his kingdom and be born again, he sovereignly does it, but he gives and grants faith and repentance as a gift so that in coming to him, you repent of your sins and you believe on him. That is the instrument the Bible says in Romans 4 that one is truly saved. And when you truly get saved, here's what happens. You abide in him. And you practice what? Righteousness. Why? Because his seed, John will go on to say, abides in you and you can't keep on in a pattern of sin. So listen, share these truths, beloved. Amen. And God, God wrote this for you to be encouraged this morning. Okay? Do you abide? 
And do you practice? And if you're abiding and practicing, not with perfection, but by grace, then be assured that God has sent his Holy Spirit into your heart and you're truly a child of God.